So today we're going to talk about Psalm 91. But as we look at Psalm 91, we need to recognize something. We all have fears, some of which are warranted and some of which not so much. I have a, not, I have a fear that I, I don't know if it's warranted or not, but I am terrified of leaving my toaster plugged in. Now, I have a good reason for this. One day, my mom, I was living with my mom at the time, and my dad had passed away recently, and we were at our house, and we came in, and we smelled something, and there was our toaster, and it had liquefied. It had shorted out and was superheating itself so much that it had become a kind of a plastic shell of liquid, and when we touched it, the liquid, which was scalding hot, got all over the place. So no plugging toasters in at my house. When I was a kid, I was afraid of throwing up. Why was I afraid of throwing up? Because I had never really done it before. And I had seen kids do it at school. There's actually a name for that. It's called emetophobia, which is the fear of throwing up in front of people. Didn't know that. Now, there are some fears that are kind of funny and we chuckle at, maybe a little embarrassing. How about this one? Pagonophobia, the fear of beards. Don't tell Pastor Taylor or Jerry over there, okay? How about turophobia? This is the fear of cheese, okay? How about this one? This one sounds terrifying, but you're going you're gonna to laugh at it. This is called arachbutyrophobia, right? So it sounds like spiders and butts, right? No, what it means is it means terrified at peanut butter getting stuck to the top of your mouth. Now, we, we joke about these because, honestly, it's a lot more fun to laugh at fears than it is to think about them, especially the names given to them are kind of ridiculous. But if we're honest with ourselves, there are things that really cause us to lie awake at night. There are things that we fear. In my family, with the family history that I've had, cancer is something that I am terrified of. I think some of you in this room would say the same thing. I have to say, I hate cancer. And honestly, I'm really looking forward to our Lord Jesus coming back, destroying cancer, and then we're going to have a dance party on its grave. Amen? But the thing, thing is, though, if we let it, fears will run us. Wouldn't it be nice if some of these good things were as resilient as our fears? Wouldn't it be nice if things like hope, goodness, kindness... We're as resilient as our fears. Because here's the thing with fears, and we know this, right? We know that if, if we let our guard down or if something happens a certain way, a fear that we may have thought that we had gotten rid of will rear its ugly head again, and we have to deal with it again. A little setback, right? So the Lord understands this. We've spent many a psalm looking at things that are going wrong. We get to this psalm, and this psalm is all about don't fear because the Lord is near you. The Lord is right there with you. See, we all get that this whole fear thing shouldn't really be around. We all get that. That's why when you go to Barnes & Noble, the biggest section is the self-help section. Go to your library. There's tons of self-help books. There's so many self-help books that they put them in other sections besides the self-help section, just in case. There's whole industries about helping yourself get over things. 
See, the problem is, is that we know that the fear cycle is not the one we should be in. We just can't figure out how to get out of it. This psalm today is the solution for the fear cycle. See, God wants us to see our fears rightly. He wants to see the world rightly. He wants our souls to have a deep-seated, unshakable security and confidence in God because we're under His protection. It reminds me of a story about the Golden Gate Bridge. You've all seen it. It's one of the largest, most spectacular bridges in the world. True story, they actually were not going to paint it red. But when, it, when all the metal showed up, it was almost all red, so they just went with it. There was a debate about whether or not to paint it multiple colors. Somebody wanted white and black. Some wanted yellow and green. I don't know. Okay, I don't know why they chose red, but they kept it red. It's 9,000 feet long from one end to the other. It just seems to kind of hang there, doesn't it? Especially when you see the, the fog around it, and it kind of just peeks out of the fog. Well, when it was being constructed, there were several instances of workers falling to their death. 200 feet hitting the, hitting the bay, the ocean, going fast enough to die. And every time this happened, the, the construction, which was over budget anyways, would slow down and they would not be able to work. I mean, think about that job, all right? These were highly trained, skilled engineers, and someone falls, they have to now go get somebody to take that person's place. Your job is to take the job of somebody who just fell and died. Doesn't sound like a really winning job. But not only that, when someone would die, everybody around them would all be much more careful, and the, 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 the construction of it would slow down, costing money. So someone came up with an idea. They said, well, why don't we build a gigantic net underneath the bridge so if people fall, they're caught? And of course, there was wag going back and forth about it. Cost about $100,000 to make, which is about a million seven in today's money. And there was a debate. Do we do this? They went ahead and did it. It was the first net of its kind in the history of the world, and it saved hundreds and hundreds of men's lives. One author writes this, the effect of the net was immediate and noticeable. The work suddenly proceeded at a much faster rate because the workmen knew that if they did slip, slip the net would catch them and their lives would be spared. This is what the Lord wants us to get from this psalm today, is that unlike the net which was, which was help from below, we have help from above that causes us that even if we slipped, He is there to catch us so we can do the things that he asked us to do. And we can do them without fear. This psalm is all about the protection of his people. He talks about it very intimately, under his wing, right up next to him, in his shadow. Nothing can terrify us. This psalm is about the confidence of those who are in Christ, those that belong to Christ. We can be right there with him because he has claim on our lives. He is protecting us. We can say, God is bigger than whatever keeps us up at night. And he will deliver us if our faith and our trust are in him. So here's our big idea. It's pretty simple. The complete security of all who put their trust in God. The complete security of all who put their trust in God. This is what this psalm is all about. There's two portions to the psalm. The first one is God's protection, what he's going to protect us from. 
And then to reiterate that, to restate that, he says, I pledge to do these things as well. And so we see this nice picture. This is God saying, yeah, you've been through all of those tough Psalms, Psalm 88, Psalm 89, even Psalm 90 to a certain degree. Now, here's my promise. There is a net. You are secure. I will protect my own. So where does this psalm fit? Who, who wrote this psalm? Well, you can see in your, psalm, in your Bible it doesn't say. Now the Jews believed that, and they, they still teach this, that all of the unsigned psalms were written by the last person who signed the previous psalm. So Psalm 90 was written by Moses. So they would teach Psalm 91 was also written by Moses. And I think that that's a probably a good guess. And honestly, we can see that. Moses is leading the Israelites through the wilderness. Moses is, is dealing with the, the constant wanting to go back. And so this psalm is saying, no, draw nearer to God. Be closer to God. It's not about go do your own thing. No, the protection is here. So let's dig into it. First thing we see, God is our place of safety, verses 1 through 4. Verse 1, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So the first thing we see in these first two verses is that God is a secure defense for those who take refuge in him. This is the primary truth right up front. The psalmist is not building to anything. He lays out the main point right at the front, and then he's going to fill in all the gaps and state it again and again and again because we need that reminder. He doesn't waste any time. And if you look at verse 1, look at, me, look at it with me. He states the same thing twice. And the reason he does this is he wants us to understand this is a complete security. So look at, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the, mighty, of the Almighty. He who dwells and will abide go together. It's the same wording. One's, one's more of a present tense and one's more of a future tense. They go together. Then in this in the shelter, in the shadow, those words are interchangeable. It means the same thing. When you're near to God in his shadow, you are in his protection. And then finally, most high and almighty, these are the same words for God. And so he, he puts this out here. This is the full point. Being close to God, being with God is a place of protection. This idea of dwelling in the Hebrew means to sit on the couch. Right? I, I can get behind that. This dwelling means to sit on the couch next to the person that's your host. It's to be next to. It's not to be afar off. To abide means to stay the night. So this is staying the night on the couch, being with the person you're staying with. I like this picture, though, of the shadow. Right? To, to be in someone's shadow, you've got to be up close to them. You've got to be near there's closeness that's required for this protection. This is not protection, I'm off doing my own thing and God's just going to take care of me because he's bound by this. No, this is saying you got to be up next to him. Where God is is where your protection is. See, when things go bad, people always turn to their God, their little G God. Right? We saw this over the last few years, didn't we? We have a disease, we need science. We have an epidemic, we need the government. And I'm glad to say that, that many of you, we said, we've got a problem, we need God. 
See, whenever fears come and they start to well up, they show us where our God is. Where do we put our hope in? Who do we trust in? And so we need to make sure, we understand this does not make sense to our world. Our world struggles with this. This is not common sense. It's not common sense to go, oh, this problem's bigger than me. I need to talk to God. I need to trust in God. Instead, it's, yeah, I might shoot some prayers up to him, and then I'll kind of do it all on my own. I'll just figure it out myself. So how do, we under, how, how do we make sense of this? Well, I want to show you the first verse again, but in a different translation. This is the, the New King James. It says, he who dwells in the secret place. One translation even says, the hiding place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. See, what's missing here is we're missing the connection between this and Psalm 25. Psalm 25 says, the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show him them his covenant. So this, this understanding of God and being able to see our fears rightly and being in tight and close with God starts from having a correct view of God. Psalm 25 says, for those who fear him. If you're here today and you are not in Christ, the fear of God is one of judgment. It's the one of condemnation for the sins that you have committed. But if you're in Christ, if you belong to him, it's no longer fear, it's reverence. It's saying, this is my God, and he is big, and he is going to protect me. This is the way we draw close to God. We see him rightly. So to trust in God is to be near to God. But which God is the psalmist talking about? Our world kind of has this big man upstairs kind of God, kind of like a Santa Claus without the red. But really, honestly, he wants us to know that this is the God of the Bible. Look at the four names he uses for God here. He says, Most High, Almighty, Lord, and God. So here's your Hebrew lesson for the day. Most High is the Hebrew word Elyon which means God, the ruler of the universe, the one who's in charge of everything. Then we get Almighty. This is the one Shaddai. Some of you have heard the El Shaddai. This means the one who gives life or takes life. Then the word Lord. This is the word Yahweh, God's personal covenantal name. This is the name that nobody would utter because they didn't want to offend and say something wrong about the God of the universe. This is his personal name. And then finally, we see the word God, which is Elohim. This means the one with the power, the one with all the power. So he is not saying some nebulous, self-created spiritualism, very popular in our world today. No, he's saying the God as revealed in the Bible who's made a covenant with me is the one that I am trusting. I am trusting in him. Beginning of verse 1, this idea of running to shelter. Because, see, you think about it, right? And you go, okay, I have a problem and something's coming for me. I need protection. You're not going to go, well, that's not really going to offer any protection, but it's better than nothing. I'll go be over there. No, you're looking for the place with the best protection. And so the fact that the psalmist is saying, I run to God, he's saying, it's the best protection. There's trust in drawing close to God when you see how big the enemy is. And we see this referred to in verse 2 when it just says, for those who trust him. See, what we run to when we're fearful is what we have our trust in. It's what we think can save us. 
And here, the psalmist is saying, you guys are getting it wrong. You need to go to God. He is the one who is trustworthy. Look, it calls him a a refuge, which means to shelter from a storm. A fortress, which is a mountain stronghold. And he says, I trust, which means I have confidence in you. So, is the trust of God in your life evident? Is it lip service? Is it fire insurance? Or is it, I am in God's presence and I want to draw nearer to Him. And the best part about it, besides getting God, is that I get protection as well. The psalmist doesn't just leave us here. He continues on. He says, you need to, you need to see how good this protection is. Look at it with me. Verse 3. For He, God, will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. And we read that and we go, okay, I'm not quite getting some of this stuff. First of all, he lays out the bad stuff, and he says, watch out for the snare of the fowler. And many of us go, huh? Then we see the pestilence thing, we go, okay, and we know that sounds bad, right? And then we get to the next part, and he goes, cover me with your pinions. Is that like those little bouncy yellow guys from Despicable Me? Little pinions, minions, some of you got that. I have kids, so, you know. Under his wings, God has wings? Wait, I'm confused. I want to be under his armies. And then we see this last one, a shield and a buckler. I don't know what that means. So here, let me, let me help you get this, because I think there's a lot here. First, we need to understand, this is, this is what God is saying he is like. So these are all metaphors. God does not have wings, But he has something like that. His protection is like wings. This idea of deliver means to save. So he says, deliver you from the snare of the fowler. Now, a snare is a trap. It's a hidden trap. And a fowler is somebody who catches birds. Now, why is this here? Well, catching of birds was the most difficult of animals to to catch, to snag. And the birds that are being referenced here, we don't know which one it is. But what we do understand is that it was a difficult trap to lay, but if you were good at it, getting the name Fowler, which means I am good at catching birds, you put down sneaky traps that nobody could see. And so that's what this is talking about. It's talking about hidden dangers. He's saying, I'm going to protect you from the stuff you can't even see is coming after you. And I'm so glad God's omniscient that he can see what's coming for us. And then he says pestilence, and you're right, this is bad. This pestilence means a gigantic disease. It means a disease that makes COVID-19 look small. It's like the Spanish flu. If you're not familiar with the Spanish flu, the Spanish flu happened right at the end of World War I. And in the span of about two years, killed more people than World War I and World War II combined. Some estimates say 100 million people died from Spanish flu. But they're not even sure. They said it could be even more than that. And that's crazy to think about that kind of pestilence. And so the idea here is that this is a disease that you can see coming. The snare is you can't see it coming. It just, boom, gets you. The pestilence is bearing down on you. You can see it coming. And you're seeing the death from that. So he's saying, I got all of this. Big stuff and the stuff you can't see is mine. Then he says, I will cover you with your pinions. This is the outer parts of a bird's wing. The mother bird at night would put the wings over the baby birds, and the baby birds would then relax. Again, birds are hard to catch. 
They're, they're, they're made by God to just be suspicious of every sound. They're twitchy, right? I mean, if you've seen those hummingbirds, they go backwards and forwards. I mean, they don't ever light for a second. That's what birds do. That's how God made them. And so the idea here is a place of safety and security. He says, I'm, you're my refuge, which means a shadow in a tree. This is a safe nest for us. And then we get these words, shield and buckler. Shield and buckler. Some translations say shield and wall or rampart, but there's more to it than this. The shield that is used here is a big, full-size piece of metal or wood that three grown men could hide behind. So this would be a place to go when the enemy is attacking you. A buckler is a small shield that you would put on your arm and use to go into battle. So again, God is making the entire thing. He's saying when you are being attacked and when you are attacking, when you're on the defense and when you're on the offense, I am there with you. I am going to protect you. So if I say, you know, just back off, the enemy's coming for you, I'm going to be your shield. If I say, go and take my word there, I am going to protect you when you go. He's got you on both sides of it. See, he's got the entire picture in mind. It reminds me of an Irishman named Frederick Nolan. He was a missionary in North Africa, and there was a time of persecution that broke out. And so he was running for his life, and he was running out of energy, and he just said, I, I, I can't keep going. So he found a cave on the side of the road, and he just kind of rolled himself into the cave and laid there and said, this is as good a place as any to die. As he sat in the cave, he saw a little spider start weaving a web like spiders do. And in the matter of a few minutes, the spider had we we woven, woven an entire web over the entire front of this cave. The men who were pursuing him showed up. They came up to the mouth of the cave, and they said, oh, he could be in here. And then they said, well, if he was in here, he would have disturbed the web, and the web's not disturbed, so he's clearly not in there. So they ran on. And Frederick Nolan says, where God is, a spider's web is like a wall. Where God is not, a wall is like a spider's web. See, this is what he's trying to tell us. He's saying, it doesn't matter how good your protection is. It doesn't matter how strong your army is. If that army's going down, I'm going to make it go down. If you're standing by yourself, I'll send legions to stand with you. We need to understand that when God is for us, nobody can stand against us. And when it is our time, he is going to graciously take us home to be with him. We need to get that that's the net that is around us. That is the net that is protecting us. So how complete is this security? Well, the psalmist just keeps going. It's almost like he can't help himself. He just wants to keep saying how good God is. Look at verse 5. He says, You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. These verses all tie to each other. I love the way this is written. Verse 4, which was just talking about the wings and the shields, now ties right in here to verse 5. You will not fear the terror of the night. Why? Because the wings are covering you in the nest. You will not fear the arrows that fly by night. Why? Because God's your shield. Even goes on to this. Look at verse 6. Nor the pestilence that stalks you in the darkness. Remember the pestilence in verse 2? This pestilence is so big, yeah, you can see it coming. It's working while you're sleeping. It's coming after you. 
Not only that, but the trap that you would walk over in the brightest part of the day will not trap you. He wants us to get that this is a complete protection. Don't fear the night terrors, the day terrors, the arrows, the diseases, the destruction from all of this. Don't fear any of it. Why? Because I am with you. Verse 7, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. The second part of verse 7 in the New Living Translation says, but it will not touch you. This is kind of the picture of being in warfare. Being in a, in a battle is, is a terrifying thing because you don't know where your death is coming from. You don't see it coming. And yet he's saying here, it doesn't matter how many surround you, they will not touch you. You will see their judgment, not yours. And in case we missed it, he repeats himself. Verse 9, because, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High is your refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. The Lord is restating it. He's saying, the Lord says, you have made me your dwelling place, your refuge, your shelter, your shield, your fortress. I am your protection. Nothing will touch you. I love this. I love that that's the picture that we see here. Now, it's important that we clarify something. We've got two big clarifications, and this is the first one. The first clarification is, this is not a verse for you if you go, I'm going to go over here and do my thing. God's going to be over here, but I'm going to go over here, and because of this verse, God has to protect me. I'm going to go do my own thing, and when I do my own thing, which invariably leads to bad things happening or repercussions to my own thing, I'm going to now claim this verse and say, God, 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 91, 91, you promised. That's not what this verse is saying. You don't just make it up as you go along, and then God's got to be contractually obligated to follow through. That's not the way this verse is, that's not the way this whole psalm is laid out. Instead, it says, this is where God is. Go be with God where he is, and then he will protect you. Not go off and do your own thing and occasionally come back and flirt with the fact that God's protecting you. It's you're either in or you're out. This is not a blanket promise. This is not a universal promise for anyone who's ever been to church. It's for all people who draw near to him as their Lord and Savior. And it gets better. Verse 11 through 13, he starts laying out even more help that we're going to get. Look at verse 11. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. He says, I'm going to protect you with my spiritual beings, with angels, if necessary. This word young lion there is kind of a weird way, but basically what it means is it means a fierce, really, you know, into it lion, a lion with some, you know, hormonal issues, and so they're really mad. That's the, the issue with this lion here. So this is saying not only just a regular lion, but a mad lion, not just an adder, but all serpents, and probably the serpent here meaning the devil, trampled underfoot. Now this does not mean that you're to go to the Oregon Zoo and jump the, jump the wall and go down there and try to lay down with the lion. That's not what this is saying. 
This is not a blanket statement that these will never hurt you. Instead, what it's saying is, is it those, those things that sneak up on you and strike you like a snake or the things that stalk you, and again, you can see them coming like a lion, those things will not get you. This is a promise to the fact that he is going to protect you. But what is this really saying? And we get to our second clarification. Is this saying that nothing bad is ever going to happen to any of us? That as soon as something bad happens, oh, that means we're not near God. Or it means that these promises have failed. Is that what this is saying? Well, that interpretation is wrong. And we know it for two reasons. One, it doesn't match with what the rest of the Bible says. And two, it's the exact interpretation that the devil uses with this passage. Remember, Jesus is off in the wilderness and the devil comes to tempt him. He quotes from this psalm. Matthew 4, verses 5 and 6. The devil took him to the holy city to set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to them, him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Interestingly enough, the devil only quotes part of the passage. He leaves out the whole getting trampled underfoot, because he is the serpent. So the devil's going to pick and choose. And here he chooses a verse to try to force Jesus into doing something for him. The devil tempts Jesus, and he tempts us to say that if the promise doesn't happen the way we think it should, and we have some suffering, then therefore the promise is false. That's not what this is promising. As a matter of fact, if we look ahead in verse 15, it says, I will be with him in what? Trouble. If this verse is promising that you will never have bad stuff happening, then why in verse 5 does he say, here, I'm going to protect you and I'm going to keep you safe, but when trouble comes, when bad things happen to you, when suffering comes, I'm going to be there with you. How can those go together? Well, we see this elsewhere, don't we? In Luke chapter 21, Jesus says, not a hair of your head will perish, and in the next verse, yet some of you will die. That does not seem to make any sense here. What this is saying is, it's saying the only thing that we will lose are the things that are expendable, and that is our life at worst. Everything else is inside of God's control. Who he is making us, who he is creating us to be, cannot be touched. Remember what it says, fear not those who can hurt the body, but fear those, one, who can deal with you in hell. Remember those verses. He's saying, this is not what it's about. It's not me promising you that suffering is not going to happen. It's promising you that the suffering does not win in the end. No matter the amount of suffering we have on this, in this life, on this earth, suffering is not the end of our life, even if that's how you end your physical life. Because when you wake up and you open your eyes, if you're in Christ, you wake up in a new body that will not see death. It will not see dying. It will not see cancer. It will not see heart disease. It will not see any of that. Life wins in the end. Death loses. This is what this is all about. Not only that, but we don't have to go through it on our own, and we don't have to have it just pretend that it's meaningful. Instead, he makes it meaningful by being there with us. And so look at the promise he gives us in verses 14 through 16. Because he holds fast to me in love. So now, this is God talking. He's saying, because 
you. So this would be us. The he here is us if we're in Christ. Because we hold fast to God in love. I will deliver him. I will protect. This is God saying, I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. And with long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This psalm lays out what comes from God keeping his promise. The repeating of God's pledge. This deliver, I love the word I will deliver. That word deliver means to bring into security. He is bringing us into lockdown right with him under protection. This is clarifying what it means. There are seven promises listed here. The first four are very practical. We get these. He's going to rescue us. He's going to protect us. He's going to answer us when we call on him. And then he's going to be right there with us. Again, if we're in Christ, if we're his followers, we believe and have trusted in him, we are right there with him and he is caring for us. The next three promises are taking our eyes out past the horizon, things we can't see yet. The first one is he says, I will honor you. Literally, give you glory. All of that esteem and worth we try so hard to get from fellow humans, he says, I'm going to give to you. Not only that, he's going to give us eternal life. And along with that, salvation of our bodies and our souls. We don't get eternal life in these broken down bodies. We get eternal life in a new redeemed body where we get to celebrate the fact that Christ took our place. What a great promise we have here. One one, uh, poet says that this is a box where sweets compacted lie. I love that. All these sweets are just in this box of we get eternal life and salvation if we are in Christ. See, no one epitomizes Psalm 91 like Jesus. No one lived in God's presence. No one more inhabited the shelter of the Most High, the shadow of the Almighty. No one took refuge in God like Jesus. No one trampled the dragon like Jesus. No one loved God or knew God's name like Jesus. No one called on God the way Jesus did. And no one will be more glorified by God than Jesus who has a name above every name. See, Jesus fulfills all of this psalm. This psalm is messianic in that it is pointing forward to somebody. And we can now look back and see Jesus fulfilled this. Every single bit of this, Jesus did perfectly. So then the question is, is this promise for us? Remember, this is written to a people that have been long dead. This was written to the Israelites. So are these promises for all humans everywhere? The answer is no. These promises are not for us unless, wonder of wonders, we are in Christ. Because Christ is the one that deserves all of this. And just like salvation, which is Jesus did all the work, we get all the benefits, this psalm is the same way. This psalm is not something that we can earn. We don't get to stand up and say, oh, I'm actually naturally good, and so this psalm is for me, and these promises are for me. We can't say, you know, I've done more good than bad, and in the scales, you know, it's tipping a little bit towards good. We can't do that. Remember the Apostle Paul, right? He did a lot of good. He wrote like 16 books of the New Testament. He says, I'm the chief. I'm the lead sinner. 
He can say that after doing all that good. There's no balancing these out. Maybe we can say it, I'm deserving, or, or I'm better than so-and-so. Throw all of that out. None of us deserve the promises and the protection that are here, save for Jesus Christ. So they are ours only in Christ. The book of Romans at the end, in, uh, well, middle, chapter 8, there's a nice little commentary on this psalm. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? This is the Apostle, this is the Apostle Paul laying out that Psalm 91 is ours in Christ only. Along with Christ, they are ours in Christ. See, if Jesus just came and did all the obe- obeying God 2,000 years ago, yeah, he's a hero. But we don't need just a hero. He's heroic, yes, but what we need is we need a Savior. And so none of these promises are ours without a Savior. So when Christ comes and saves us, we now inhabit these promises. See, because anybody can pull a Bible verse out of a Bible. You know, a pagan can go and grab a Bible and open up a Bible verse and see, see God, you have to do this. It doesn't matter that it's in the Bible. It matters whether Christ is in you so those apply to you. Jesus lived out this psalm so that we could live out this psalm. His people inhabit the hiding place and the shadow only because of the grace of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. This Jesus that we have is declared when we believe. We are in his fortress when we believe. We are under the shadow of his wings when we believe. And that's the place where you cannot be touched. So we get the peace that passes all understanding. You guys know these verses. Not because we've done something and we've checked a box, but because we are right with God, right next to Him. See, becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, becoming one of His own, is not a, I've done it, now check it off the box and go live. It's, I'm doing it forever because it is the only way I can live. It's the only way I am protected. The evangelist George Whitfield said, we are all immortal until our work for Christ is done. We are all immortal. The devil cannot touch us and do anything to us until God says, all right, you're done. Come home. This is how Paul can say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul's going, I got work to do and I'm going to continue to do this work. And when my work is done, I get to go be with Jesus. Spurgeon, of course, I have to have a Spurgeon quote. Spurgeon says, No believer dies an untimely death. Long life is not to be reckoned by years as men count them. He lives longest who lives best. Many a man has crowded a half century into a single year. God gives his people life, not as the clock ticks, but as he helps them to serve him. And he can make them to live much in a short space of time. There are no untimely figs gathered into God's basket. The great master of the vineyard plucks the grapes when they are ripe ripe, and ready to be taken and not a moment before. Psalm 139.16 says, You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. See, we need to understand that this we are protected and we are in the net 
until God goes, come home. George MacDonald wrote, this is a wise and sane Christian faith, that a man commit himself, his life, and his hopes to God, that God undertakes the special protection of that man, and that therefore that man ought not be afraid of anything. It reminds me of a, of a trapeze artist's story. The, t- the pastor was talking to him, and he, he said, what, what, what do you think about this net? The trapeze artist says, I'm really grateful for it. Keeps me from breaking my neck. I like that. However, it also keeps me from falling. And the pastor went, it keeps you from falling? Yeah, he says, imagine there is no net. We would be so nervous that we would more likely miss our next catch and fall. But because there's a net, we dare to do things that we wouldn't normally do. Because there's a net, I can do one turn. No, I can do three turns thanks to the net. See, we need to understand, we have security in God. When we are sure in his arms, we can dare to attempt big things for God. We can dare to be holy. We can dare to be obedient. We can dare because we know God's eternal arms will hold us even if we fall. That's the truth of this psalm. And that's the truth for you today. That if you are in Christ, he holds you and you cannot fall. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for your psalms that give us hope. Sometimes they ground us in what's going on, but mostly, Lord, they show us who you are. Lord, your son purchased this psalm for each and every one of us. I pray, Lord, that we would submit to you and just relish the protection and the comfort and the warmth of being in your presence. Lord, forgive us when we want our own way and try to do it in our own strength. And Lord, draw us near to you. Help us to trust you and see you as our good Father who cares for us, the Almighty, Most High God, Yahweh. Lord, we love you in your name. Amen.